0: their way out. Uh, Is there any adults that would like to go as well? (laughs) Speak now or forever hold your peace for the next 50 minutes. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are walking through this first chapter, these first three Sundays in the month of November, and um, looking at just the idea of gratitude, what we can be thankful for. And looking at what Paul is thankful for as he writes this letter to the Thessalonian believers there in Thessalonica. We're going to move into a response time in, in just a moment. And during that response time, we're going to sing a song, just as I am. A song is very familiar, a hymn that's very familiar to most of us. If you grew up in a Baptist church, especially a Southern Baptist church, you've sung that song at some point, most likely during imitation or response time. It's perhaps my favorite song um, for that type of uh, occasion. The song was written by Charlotte Elliott. You may have never heard her name before, but Charlotte Elliott was a beautiful and extremely talented young lady. At the time of the story I'm about to share with you, she lived in Brighton, England, there in the early, earlier part of the 19th century. She had an enormous talent as a singer. She was an incredible songwriter. She was a talented musician. In fact, people would come from all over England to listen to her play and sing and and enjoy the songs that she had written. As people were coming from all over England, one particular occasion they were there to watch her in a musical play. In fact, the show was a sellout. People were buying up tickets left and right to for an opportunity to enjoy this wonderful uh, musical play, there in the city of Brighton, there happened to be that particular week a Swiss evangelist by the name of Caesar Milan. Uh, he was in Brighton. In fact, he was traveling throughout the the land of England, preaching at several different churches. And he had heard of Charlotte Elliott. He knew of some of her music, and so he wanted to go to this musical and to enjoy. This wonderful show and so that evening during the show he was taken back by her beauty and her talent and her giftedness as a musician. He was blessed by her abilities and so afterward he played the role of most everyone else by standing in line and and for an opportunity and a chance to meet her and to speak with her after the show. Now, something you need to know about Charlotte Elliott as we move into this story of what led ultimately to this song being written was the fact that Charlotte Elliott had grew up in a Christian home. In fact, she has a relative who was, a, who was an ordained pastor at the time. But Charlotte Elliott was far from God at this point. And so, Milan, when he finally got up to meeting Miss Elliott there on the line after the show, uh... He asked her a very pointed question, which is one of the questions that when you hear it, you think, why in the world would he have asked that? It seems so out of place, but he got up there, he shook her hand, he looked her square in the eyes, and he says, have you ever considered using your talent for Jesus Christ? You can imagine how that went over. She just simply stared at him with no response. And then he followed that statement up by saying, have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And you can imagine what she did next. I mean, she was offended. In fact, her body language gave evidence of her offense. In fact, she went further and even said that she was offended by what he had asked of her. Caesar Milan, a this great Swiss evangelist, this tender preacher of the Word of God, looked at her and says, well, Miss Elliot, I I didn't mean to upset you, but I just wanted you to know how much the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. And so then he walked away, and for a number of days, Charlotte Elliot wrestled with those questions that Reverend Milan had asked her. In fact, she wrestled with them to the point of stewing over them at many points he would become angry at some of the questions that he had asked and and just really wrestled with this whole idea in fact she got to the point where her anger turned into a little bit of conviction she began to think about how she had responded to Mr. Milan she even said to herself you know I really was kind of ugly to Mr. Milan maybe I should find him and Maybe I should apologize for the way I acted toward him. And so him being a famous preacher, it wasn't too hard to figure out which church he was preaching in. And so she went there and found him and began to converse with him. In fact, she even began to apologize for what she had done to him. She says, I'm sorry for reacting the way I did. And I really would like to come to Christ, but I can't. I can't. There's too much in my life that's a mess So I need to clean up myself before I can come to Jesus. And then seasoned Malone, this seasoned preacher, looked at her with the love of Jesus, and he simply said this, Come to Him just as you are. But she refused at that point. She goes home that evening and tries to go to, to sleep, to get up and be rested for the next day, but sleep evaded her, and she kept wrestling over the words that Milan had spoken that night. Just come to Jesus as you are. And so about 2 o'clock in the morning, Elizabeth Elliot finally crawled out of bed, no longer uh, thinking she could ever sleep. And so she gets out of bed. She gets on her knees. She begins to cry out to the Lord Jesus. And there on her knees, confesses her sins and places her trust in Jesus Christ, coming to him just as she was. Being the songwriter that she was, Elliot walked over to a desk, and she began to write what would later become the song, Just As I Am. She wrote, Just As I Am. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Charlotte Elliott Ev- was forever and eternally changed by the power of the gospel that night. She became a champion for Christ. She wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 different hymns that have grace- greatly blessed the church since that time. She never got over what Jesus did for her. In fact, she was forever grateful and thankful for the gospel. This month, we're taking three Sundays and we're looking to this subject of thanksgiving. And we're addressing the subject of gratitude and thankfulness, but we're doing it in a very different and unique way. We're looking at the words of Paul here in the first chapter of this letter. and We're discovering the three gifts that the Lord had blessed him with as a pastor and as a preacher. That of the church... The gospel and the mission. Last week I told you that the, the apostle knew these Thessalonians very well. It was he and Timothy and Silas who had preached the gospel to them first and led them to faith in Jesus, had discipled and planted this church. He had seen the mighty transformation take place in their lives through the powerful, redemptive work of Jesus. And in this letter... Writing from Corinth, Paul here is writing to encourage, to equip, to spur them on to greater sanctification, to greater love of Jesus, to be a blessing to one another. He couldn't help as he started to express his gratitude to God for the work of God that had been done in their lives. Last Sunday, we looked at what it means to be thankful for the church. We learned that the active faith and love and hope that were demonstrated by the church were incredible examples that motivated other believers to greater sanctification. We also learned that those things led to a rebuke that should lead to correction in the lives of Christians. Today we're looking at why we should be thankful for the gospel. You see, we wouldn't have a church today if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason we gather this morning is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we gather for any other reason, we're nothing more than a social club, but we gather to worship a Savior who is risen, and His name is Jesus, and He has a message for you and for me and for everyone in this world. That message is the gospel. I was going to say that was a good place to say amen, and two people beat you to it. But that's a good place to say amen. Amen. We are thankful for the gospel. If you will, look with me there. Two verses this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul here thanked God for the Thessalonian believers because he was sure of their election by God. He was sure that they had been chosen by God for a relationship. How could Paul be sure of this? How could could Paul be confident that they were followers of God, that, that Jesus had done a great redemptive work in their hearts? What was it that gave evidence of this in their lives? Well, Paul had seen the evidence in their lives. He had seen that they were part of the called people of God. He had seen and heard about their working faith, things that we looked at last week. He knew and had heard of their laboring love, their steadfast and enduring hope in Christ. There had been a mighty change in their lives. Life transformation had taken place. They were not the type of Christian that says, sure, I'm a follower of Jesus, but there's no evidence. They would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you don't take my word for it. Look at the evidence of my life. Look what others are saying about my life. Paul knew these believers. There had been a mighty change in them. They were not who they used to be because Jesus had made a difference. And so how did Jesus make the difference in the Thessalonians' lives? What was it that Jesus did? I mean, did he just make them the religious people or is there something more? Paul tells us here in verse 5 that it was through the power of the gospel that he made a transformation in their lives. That begs the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You've probably heard it said that the gospel just literally means good news. What's the good news then? The good news is what Jesus has done for us you see the good news centers on jesus it tells the story of what he came to do for men and women and boys and girls it doesn't matter what background you have it doesn't matter what race you are doesn't matter what social class you come from the gospel is good news for all people it's the message that jesus preached when he said there in luke 19 10 the son of man came to seek and to save the lost that's the good news it's the message Paul would receive from God, and it's the message he gave his life to proclaim. He preached that Jesus died for our sins. He preached that Jesus was buried in a grave, and he preached that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's 1 Corinthians 15, through 4 I mean, if we don't have a gospel that tells us who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and the fact that he's alive today, we have no gospel. We have no good news. Paul would tell us there in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we of mo- all people are most to be pitied. We have no hope. Paul declared to the Romans there in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, what Paul is saying is salvation, the message of the gospel, is for everybody, Jew and Gentile, and everyone in between message the disciples had also received from God. This week if you're reading through the Bible chronologically with us, you read this this passage here in Acts chapter 4. You remember what the story is in chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. They're still practicing Jews even though they've been redeemed by Jesus and as they go to the temple to to worship the Lord, there's a beggar there who's been A lame person from birth. He's over 40 years old and he's begging for alms. He just wants something to put in his hand, so we can get something to eat for that day. And Peter looks at him and says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand and walk. And you can imagine the, 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 Chaos that ensued after that and people began to gather around because here's a guy who's never walked a day in his life and all of a sudden he's standing on his feet and, and the crowd began to marvel at this and talk about this and more and more people come and Peter stands and taking the opportunity, preaches Jesus to this crowd. People begin to be saved. They begin to put their faith in Jesus who's healed this man. And so the religious people come and they arrest Peter and John. They drag them away. They warn them to never preach in the name of Jesus. And Those two men stood there before those religious leaders and they said, We believe that there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You be the judge whether we believe you and obey you or God. We will preach Jesus. You see, the gospel is the good news that broken people like you and I can be in relationship with the one and only righteous, perfect, holy, and just God. How in the world can that be? If you were completely honest with yourself this morning, you would know that you're a sinner. You know that you struggle. You know that there's shame in your life. You know there's things in your life you're not proud of. You know the guilt that you've carried in your life. And so how in the world could a perfect and holy and just God ever accept and embrace you and me? I think we all realize We're not perfect. And I think we all have an understanding that God is good and that God is better. And so how in the world does a less than perfect person come into relationship and is welcomed by a perfect and holy God? The only answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. The Bible teaches us that every person was designed and created by God. I, I love the book of Genesis. In fact, I don't believe you can understand the rest of the Bible if you don't understand Genesis. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that after God created man and woman and everything was wonderful there and they were experiencing the blessing of God, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, fell. But God came. They were created by God and so even though they fell, He still had a plan for their life. Even though they've been designed by God and brokenness had taken place, God still had a design for their life. And so the Bible teaches us that God designed every area of our lives. God has a design for our families. It is a design for our money. It is a design for our sex life, for our work life, and, and every plain aspect of life. God designed us to be in relationship with Him. But the Bible tells us there in Genesis 3 and many other places that we have all broken His design. And the Bible calls this sin. You see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's command in the garden, they brought the curse of God not just upon them, but upon you and I as well. We carry that curse. It's been passed on from generation to generation so that now all of us are born with a sinful nature. It is in, innate within our personalities, within our DNA. It comes naturally to us. There's no one who Gets it all right all of the time. In fact, we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's standard of his glory. It's perfect design for our lives. And so what sin does to us is it leads to brokenness. Brokenness is probably a lot more easy for us to understand because we can look at our lives, we can look at our families and see the brokenness. It looks like broken relationships. It looks like addiction. It looks like depression and discouragement. It looks like guilt and shame. Does any of this make sense to you? We all want it out of our brokenness. So what do we do? We try to fix it. What do we do when we try to fix it? We make things worse. So we medicate with drugs to numb the pain and to, 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 to numb the shame. We try to numb it with alcohol or anything and everything we can think of. We try to cram it into that hole within our hearts that's missing the life of God. We strive to be better people, hoping that somehow, in some way, our good can outweigh our bad. We look for ways to alleviate our pain. And when we do all of that, like I just said, we just get more and more broken. And in many ways, this brokenness and how it becomes more and more brokenness really feels like a bad thing. But there's also some hope there. Because the fact that we feel our brokenness and because we can see the brokenness in our life, it ought to lead us to the understanding that we need to be healed, that we need to be restored, that the broken pieces of our life that look like just shards laid out across the floor, those need to be reformed into something that brings glory and honor to God. And so it ought to drive us to seek and to search for something to heal us we feel broken on the inside, and everything's all messed up, we ought to understand that something needs to change. And here's where the Bible interjects this word, gospel. This idea of good news. The good news, the Bible declares to us, is that God has done for you and for me what we cannot do for ourselves. He is the one who made a way where there seemed to be no way. And the reason it seemed to be no way, because there was no way. God the Father sent God the Son to this world and we know his name is Jesus. Do you know the name of Jesus? It's really Yeshua. It's I, the same word, Joshua. You know what it means? God saves. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, which I just read earlier, Luke 19, 10. Jesus is God the Father's gift to humanity. God the Son came, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, keeping and fulfilling all of the law, so that now when he came to the cross, he was able to stretch his arm out, to allow the blood to drip from his veins, so that he could be the perfect atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin, past, present, and... And future. The Bible tells us that Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible says, as Paul declared there in 1 Corinthians 15, that then he was buried in a tomb. And then three days later, he rose, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus did all of that so that far from God people could experience God's design for their lives so in order to experience God's solution for our brokenness, the Bible tells us what we need to do. It's more than just mental assent. Yeah, I acknowledge that Jesus went to the cross. I acknowledge Jesus' blood was shed. I acknowledge that Jesus was buried and raised from the grave. Now, there's something that we have to do. And the Bible calls us to repent and believe. You've also read this week in your devotion time, if you're reading with us, where Paul stood there at the, uh, the, the Pentecostal moment where the Holy Spirit came and he began to proclaim the gospel to those people. And what was their response? What should we do? What did he say to him? Repent and be baptized. In other words, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible calls us to do. See, the change we really need can only come from Jesus. You can't watch enough self-help videos. You can't read enough books. You can't go to enough counselors. The help we all need that's going to make an eternal difference in our life only comes from Jesus in a relationship with him. So when we repent, which means to turn from, when we repent of our sin, we choose to turn away from our sin, to turn away from ourselves, and we are now turning to Jesus. Instead of trusting in our ability to earn our way to heaven, to earn our way to a better life, we are now believing in Jesus' provision through the cross. We believe that his sacrifice, his resurrection are sufficient. What did Isaiah say? that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. There's nothing you can do to earn your way. There's nothing good you can do to turn God's uh, eye towards you. No, we're all sinful and broken, haters of God. But Jesus has done for you and I for what we cannot do for ourselves. So when we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we put our trust in His death and resurrection, then the Bible tells us that we will be saved from our sin. We will experience forgiveness of that sin, past, present, and future. I was talking with some folks the other day, and we were talking about sin, and, and just the idea of, of obviously we need to forgive those who've sinned against us, but a lot of times we feel like we ought to forget. And Bless God, if you can forget the harm done to you, that is a huge benefit. But many times, we cannot forget those things. We can forgive, absolutely, but we can't always forget. But God tells us in His Word that He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. How in the world can the sovereign God who knows every single thing there's ever to know forget about your sin? Well, it's not that he forgets, it's that he chooses not to remember and hold it against you. That's the grace of God. That's the forgiveness of God. He removes your sin. And now that enables you and I, in the gospel, to pursue and to recover that design that we talked about earlier. The God's design for your life. You see, Jesus' work on the cross is what makes it possible to have a relationship with the Lord, the one who created you for himself. He's the one who resurrects our dead spirits to new life in Christ. And so that now, in that relationship, we can pursue who and whom we were created for. And as a result, we can recover God's great design for our lives. And Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, your marriage ought to be a whole lot different than the people who are not in relationship with Jesus. There ought to be something redemptive that's evidence in your marriage. Your home as you raise children or your grandchildren, as they look at your life, there ought to be something redemptive there. There ought to be something evident of your walk with Jesus because you're not like everyone else. You've been changed. That's what Paul's is this glory in God over as he writes this letter he's looking at this, these, these Christians and he says I bless God for you I know you're chosen in Jesus I know you're in relationship with him I've seen the evidence and I give God praise and glory for that so now go live for Jesus and be his witness again man that's good preaching and your, your response is not on par this morning one of these days we'll be a happy clappy church and uh Not today, though, obviously. Paul really did thank God for the gospel. Uh, This gospel that had so radically transformed the lives of these believers in Thessalonica. He rejoiced in its proclamation because Paul really understood the power of the gospel. That's why he can say those statements, the, 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 that, that the gospel, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Why am I not ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation. There is no other hope. There's no, there's no self-help. There's no, I'm going to try harder. There's no, I'm going to do it by pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. There's none of that stuff. There's no, there's no human help or human effort that's ever going to make the difference. It's only the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel can take a young five-year-old child who understands what it means to be a sinner and how the sin separates them from their God, can believe in Jesus Christ and be redeemed. That's why the 95-year-old man who's rejected Jesus all of his life, now on his deathbed with perhaps the last opportunity, can reach up and cry out to Jesus and be redeemed and go to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, and white. It doesn't matter what what side of the tracks you come from. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul rejoiced in the gospel. And he rejoiced in the gospel for three things that I want to share with you this morning in the next couple minutes. Three things that the gospel reveals to us. And these will be brief. First of all, the gospel reveals the love of God. Verse 4 For we know, brothers, loved by God. 1 John 4 8, the Bible tells us that God is love. You want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross. If you want to know what, how, what it means to experience love, look at how others have been embraced by Jesus and their lives transformed and, and how, uh, now they have love within them because God has loved them. I mean, John 3:16 so clearly declares the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the love of God. And so how did God? Give His Son. Well, the Bible tells us that the Son was sacrificed on a cross to atone for your sin and for my sin. That's the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave his son. What did He give Him to? He gave Him to the cross. He gave Him to be punished. He gave Him to, be, uh, to carry the weight of the sin of humanity, to be separated from the Father for the very first time and the final time in all of eternity. Some, someone asked me the other day about that moment where Jesus is on the cross and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe the reason Jesus cried out like that is because He was beginning to feel the weight of your sin and He was beginning to feel what it means to be separated from God. He cried out in agony. Why did he do all of that? He did it as Paul said in Romans 5.18 because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You weren't even a blip on the radar of eternity except for in God's eternity and Jesus was on the cross thinking of you. As his blood was being poured out, he was thinking of you. You see the love of God in the cross? You see the love of God flowing in the blood of the cross? Do you see here the love of God in the kindness of the cross? God didn't have to provide an atonement for your sin. He didn't have to provide atonement for our sin. He could have wiped us out, sent us to hell what we deserved, and started over. He could have rejected us and judged our sin, but instead, in His love for you and me, He has chosen. Us to be children of God through the power of the gospel. And so the gospel reveals the love of God. Secondly, the gospel reveals the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. Verse 5, he says, because our gospel came to you. The gospel came to the Thessalonians. God is the initiator in this. Who brought it? Paul and Silas and Timothy brought it. But who initiated them? Who sent them? It was God. Who sent the gospel. The Bible teaches that human beings cannot and will not pursue God. If you want to understand that better, go to Romans chapter 3 there, verses 9 through 18, and it'll really show you what you were like before you came to Jesus. In fact, Paul will quote from the Old Testament and tell us that we were haters of God, enemies of God, wanting nothing to do with God, and yet God is the one who pursues us. He's the initiator in your life. We're the broken people. We're the ones who's design that God had put there has been broken but God teaches that he pursues men, women, boys and girls. He's pursuing some of you this morning Think about what this means. How does this play out in salvation history? You remember Abraham Father Abraham, right? Abraham's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. He's in the, the land of Haram, the city of Haran. And, and God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to get up and I want you to go to a place I've not yet told you. And what does Abraham do? He believes God and he goes. Abraham wasn't pursuing God. Abraham was pursuing himself. He was pursuing idols. And it was God who came to him. The same was with Moses. Go, Moses fled Egypt. He's on the backside of the Midian wilderness. And there was... There it was, where God came in the burning bush and, and pursued Moses in relationship. flip to the first Samuel chapter one, you see this young boy by the name of Samuel growing up in Eli 's home, he has a miraculous birth. Eli or, or Samuel wasn't pursuing God. God was pursuing Samuel, there in the home of Eli, the high priest. Jesus if we Fast forward to the Gospels. Jesus is the one who came and found James and John on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is the one who came to, uh, to, to Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus is the one who came by and spoke to Zacchaeus. Jesus is the one who's pursuing people in the Gospels. Acts chapter 9. Since we're reading a Pauline epistle, let's talk about Paul. Paul in Acts chapter 9 was known as Saul of Tarsus. He's a priest. He's zealous for the law. He's on his way to Damascus to, to arrest and to drag out Jesus' followers. And there on the Damascus road, who meets Saul? It's Jesus. Jesus pursued Saul, turned him into Paul. He no longer was the persecutor of the church. Now he's the proclaimer of the gospel. He's no longer a person who's imprisoning people. Now he's planting churches and sharing the gospel. God will hunt you down and when he's on your trail there's nowhere you can hide why does he pursue you it's because he loves you I've often shared in my own testimony that the day I got saved you see there was a lot of moments that I I wanted I guess because the Holy Spirit was working for so long in my life I wanted to be saved but until it's time you can't get saved And so the day I gave my life to Jesus, April twenty 1997, I've often said that there was nothing I could do that day but give my life to Jesus. Why? It's because it was my time as God was hunting me down, pursuing me in a relationship. As the gospel, Paul tells us, came to the Thessalonians, and they believed and were changed. Today the gospel comes to you and to me. The question is, will we believe and be changed? There's a third thing the gospel reveals, and that is, the earnestness of God again in verse 5 because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction for you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake I'll read this verse and I think of the earnestness of God I, I love this word it's not a word we use very often but it's a word that speaks of a sincere and intense conviction this is the picture we see in how the gospel comes to the Thessalonians. The gospel came to them in word, but Paul says it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And So first the word was preached. This is how faith comes to people. It comes through the preaching. It comes through the teaching. It comes through the reading of God's word. There is no salvation that's divorced from the proclamation of the word of God. You can't just say I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. It's the Word of God attesting to your spirit, being fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken you to new life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. But God doesn't leave it there. Paul tells us that he coupled the preaching of the word with the power and with the Holy Spirit. In other words, miracles were taking place in the lives of people. And this validated the proclamation of this good news. The Holy Spirit was active throughout the process. The Spirit's job is to awaken us, to draw people to faith. He guides people to truth and he grants assurance to the messengers. And so what Paul says here is there was also full conviction. In other words, as Paul was proclaiming, Silas is proclaiming, Timothy is proclaiming, they could sense the power of the Holy Spirit working through their message of the gospel, awakening people to eternal life. The earnestness of God is at work here, drawing men, women, boys, and girls to faith in Jesus. So he points out that Paul and his brothers had this assurance in their life as they preach. So the gospel reveals the earnestness. He, he longs, in other words, to be in relationship with us. He longs for us to know him, for, for him to know them, for God to know you. So that's why we go to great lengths to get the gospel to a person. God goes to great lengths. Think about what God does. God will put a Bible in someone's hands. You say, oh, it was just coincidence. They just happened to be in the hotel that night that they thought about shooting themselves. And there just happened to be a Gideon's Bible in the nightstand. No, God moved Gideon's to put Bibles in hotel rooms because they know people move around the world and the gospel is there in almost every hotel room in the world. God did that. He puts a Bible there. He'll send a witness. There will be some random person come up and there will be a witness when the witness needs to be a witness. God sends them. God's pursuing them. It's the earnestness of God that's leading to that. He will bind himself to the process in order to ensure that lost sheep are found. I love 2 Peter 3, 9, where Peter's really speaking and and trying to encourage the church about last things because they're facing such persecution at this point. And he says, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise." Because some of these people are really agonized because they're really they're taking it on the chin for Jesus. And, and Peter's trying to help him understand that the Lord is tearing, but He's tearing because His grace and His goodness wants more people to be in relationship with Him. And so he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The earnestness of God... It was what allows God to give you more time. But it doesn't mean you have an infinite amount of time. You know, statistics tell us that if a person's going to come into relationship with Jesus Christ, that decision will most likely be made by the age of 18. And then after that, so what you have, if you were to put it on a curve, you've got a lot of a high percentage of probability for people to come into relationship with Jesus up to the age of 18 and then after the age of 18 you've got this descent in the probability of people coming to Jesus. Now is it probable that people can be saved after 18? Yes but the likelihood diminishes because the more you say no, I believe the greater calluses you build up over your spiritual ears and you can't hear the gospel any longer. So today Maybe you're a child, one that's not downstairs. Maybe you're a teenager, a college student, and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Why not? If you say no today again, the likelihood that you'll say no again tomorrow is greater Perhaps you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 today and you've said no to the gospel countless times. The reason you can't hear the gospel any longer is because it's that small faint voice that you can't hear because you've got cataracts on your eyes and and calluses on your ears. So you can't see Jesus and you can't hear Jesus. You say, Pastor, you don't make any sense. Well, the Bible gives us an illustration of this, does it not? I mentioned how Saul became Paul earlier. If you remember the story there in Acts chapter 9, Saul interfaces with Jesus on the road leading to Damascus, and it blinds him, right? The glory of God blinds him. So he's told to go on into Damascus and await, just kind of sit there and hang out until somebody is sent to him. And so Saul does that. And a guy named, um, oh man, I just drew a strip blank. That guy, I don't hear. All I can think of is Ananias, and I know that's not right. So anyway, you know who I'm talking about. God sends a messenger, and when he tells him, hey, I want you to go to Saul, this guy has a a little conversation with the Lord. I've heard about him, and I'd prefer not to go to him, but if you want me to go, I'll go. And so he goes, and he prays over Saul, and Saul becomes Paul. And what happens to Paul? Scales fall from his eyes, right? What's the big deal about scales? Scales. You see, uh, Paul was blinded to the gospel prior to embracing the gospel. Ananias, I knew it started with an A. Amen, on the A team. Preachers forget people in the Bible. That should not be. There's so many of them, you know. So how does a person come into relationship with Jesus? I said just a couple minutes, but you know how that is. But I'm I'm landing the plane. How do we come into relationship with Jesus? I mentioned earlier, Peter tells those in Acts chapter 2 how to come to faith in Christ. And he says, repent and be baptized. In other words, repent and believe. Seems so simple. In fact, it is simple. Romans 10, 9, for if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is good news and the gospel is Simple. So that raises a question, why don't more people experience salvation if it's so simple? The reason is, the answer is because we all tend to react to the gospel much like Charlotte Elliott did. You remember the story when uh, Caesar Milan asked her the question, have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And what was her response? It was one of offense. She was offended by the thought of having to confess her sin. But obviously she knew there were some parts of her life that were broken. Later she even confessed to that, that I can't come to Jesus. I'm a mess. I've got to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. But that's how we respond. We're offended by the gospel. We're offended by the idea that we might not be good enough to earn salvation. And and so what we want to do, because if we're really honest, we will acknowledge there are some bad parts, but we still think we're good enough to clean ourselves up. That we can go to our own broom closet, get our own mop bu- brush, mop and bucket, and come out and clean our lives up. But it doesn't work that way. Elliot wanted to clean herself up. Caesar Milan says, just come as you are. The good news of the gospel is that you cannot clean yourself. A polluted well cannot, in of itself, produce clean water. So the well needs some outside force to come in and to clean it from the inside out. And that is what Jesus does for you and what he does for me. He paid the penalty for our sin there on the cross. And every sin you've committed, you will commit and will commit, was laid upon him there on the cross that day. The Bible tells us it was nailed to the cross in Colossians 2. The debt has been paid, in other words. The legal demands have been met. It was finished In Jesus. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said to Telestai, it is finished. That means it's finished for your sins. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do. Today, the good news of the gospel is that you can now receive the forgiveness of sin that was purchased. It comes through repentance and faith. Jesus doesn't require you to clean yourself up. In fact, that disqualifies you. This morning, if you want to clean yourself up, you're disqualified. You can't do it. But all you can do is fall on the mercy of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And Jesus would say to you today, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to Him in your sin, come to Him in your shame, come to Him in your brokenness, come to Him with your doubts and your fears and your mess, come to Him with your addiction, come to Jesus just as you are, and Jesus says you will find rest. Not just rest for today, not just rest for tomorrow, but rest for all of eternity. And so this morning, don't be offended by the gospel, but instead, see the love of God in the gospel, see the pursuit of God in the gospel, and see the earnestness of God. Earnestness of God in the gospel because He loves you and He loves me, and we know this tr- is true because of the gospel. This morning, come just as you are. We're going to sing that hymn this morning in our time of response. And so, this morning, the imitation, the time of response, most likely, if you're someone who's lost, and today. The Holy Spirit has brought back up to your mind and your heart the fact that you are lost and separated from God in your sin. You might be a child, you might be a teenager, you might be a senior adult, but today, if you were to die, you would spend an eternity in hell because you deserve that. But the love of God is stirring within your heart a desire to know Jesus. The invitation is for you to come just as you are. Today, you may be a a follower of Jesus, but you're walking at a guilty distance. Today is a day for you to come just as you are. Experience forgiveness. Experience revival. Experience a new movement in your life. Come just as you are this morning. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the gospel and the power of God it is for salvation. Lord, the deep desire of my life pales in comparison to your deep desire. And that is for broken, far from God people to be restored and to be put back together through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that those who need to come just as they are, I pray they would do that. God, may our time of response be a time of faith, a time of obedience, and a time where we simply humble ourselves before you and we cry out, God save me. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, restore me. Remake me. Change my life, oh God. Holy Spirit, give us the courage and the boldness and the faith to respond as we should this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.